Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another series of Gresham Physic Lectures. And I'd particularly like to welcome all of those who are watching online at the moment. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about what is value in healthcare. And um, if you have arthritis of the hip causing pain and restricted movement, and it's, it's obvious that to get rid of the pain and to be able to restore movement would be a good thing. It would be of value to you. And we can usually achieve that by, for example, replacing a joint, get you back to work, support a family, stay active and enjoy life. Prompt and appropriate joint replacement is a good idea. Some couples, being desperate for children, find that they can't conceive. Some will be suitable for IVF, and they may need several cycles of that treatment in the hope of success. The value to them of having children is self-evident. Or a patient with a terminal malignancy may benefit from an expensive new drug which might prolong life, as it has done in a few patients, and living longer for them may be valuable so that they could spend more time with the family, put their affairs in order, or complete a bucket list of things they might want to do. And it also offers the ephemeral concept of hope. Now, the value to these patients is clear, but the wider value to society of the liberal use of these treatments has been called into question, as those buying care in the health system struggle to decide how to divvy up their increasingly challenged budgets. <coughs> Excuse me. Access to joint replacement is being restricted. IVF is rationed in many parts of the country. And um, the availability of innovative but potentially expensive drugs is constrained. Now, against that background, um, these are the issues that I'm going to consider uh, during this lecture. And I'll take a drink while you're reading them. Before I go through the story, I want to emphasise the overriding importance of government policies in the allocation of resources to health service and what is prioritised within the financial envelope. The amount of money that governments choose to spend in health varies considerably. Um, as you can see from this map from the World Bank, actually, you probably can't see it because some of the colours don't show up. Um, expenditure is expressed as a percentage of GDP. Dark is more. Um, and pale is less, and the, actually the vast majority of the world's population lives in regions with very low health expenditure. In fact, most countries in the world have a, an expenditure on health of less than 4% of their GDP. But over the last 25 years, most of the developed countries have increased their expenditure on health as that percentage, and the USA now spends roughly twice as much as the others. That 4% bar across the bottom is most countries, and there's the relation between USA expenditure and the rest of the developed world. They spend over 17% of their GDP on healthcare, and we spend, in, um, if you like, the rest of the Western world, about 8%. And if you look at that in terms of the amount expressed uh, spent per capita, you can see that the difference is even more stark, with their spending over 85 $1,000 per head per year. 
So if they're spending twice as much, do they live twice as long? Or are they twice as healthy? Well, sadly, the answer to both of these questions is no. In fact, um, the USA has the highest infant mortality rate, the highest percentage of adults with at least two chronic conditions, the highest mortality in conditions that are amenable to healthcare, and the shortest life expectancy when you reach 60. And remember, too, that in the US, it's an insurance-based system largely, and millions of Americans are uninsured. The bills that they face for care can be huge and often unaffordable. Homes can be lost, divorce may follow, and over 60% of bankruptcies in the United States follow unexpectedly large medical bills. They spend the most money and maybe they get the least value. Now we've got different problems here. Austerity policies have reduced public spending year on year over the last decade um, as a percentage of GDP. The government has chosen, we have chosen the government, and that government has chosen to shrink the size of the state. And whilst health's proportion of the cake has held fairly constant, the size of the cake has shrunk. So despite year on year growth in demand and a rising and aging population, we have got a fairly static budget which doesn't meet our needs. We've got more demand, changing structures, a hugely complex organisation and facing those things listed at the bottom. And on top of that, we're being asked to save $22 billion uh, out of the total cost of healthcare, which is a vast amount of money. It's not really surprising that the concept of looking for value is so current and so important. Just today in the news, um, these choices are having consequences, as we've heard, with longer waits. Most of the hospitals in the country are now not meeting their waiting targets. This was from the BBC website this morning. And people are being forced to make difficult choices, spending their savings in order to get treatment that they feel is appropriate. So the government, wherever the government is, makes choices which affect all of us. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, clinicians are exempt from having anything to do with it. Of course we, ha- of course we are. Um, Chris Hamm, um, who in an introduction to the King's Fund um, review in 2015, said it's our duty to maximise the value for every pound spent on patient care. And that's a clinical duty. It's about clinical practice. So... If we're going to accept that, that government has a role to deliver the budget and we have a role to create value in some way, how do we choose what we're going to do? Well, I was brought up on the basis of something called um, best available evidence. It became called evidence-based medicine in 1992. And it's a a really attractive concept um, that you make your treatment decisions on the best available evidence. But to do that, you've got to have access to the best evidence. You've got to trust it. You have to believe in its veracity. It's got to be implementable with your team. And in addition to that, you've got to have permission to do it. So, for example, a hip replacement we know works, but you're not now being given permission to do it. The trouble is that there is an enormous amount of evidence out there. And trying to find a way in which we can filter our way through that stuff is quite difficult. 
Unfortunately, um, over the years, evidence in medicine has been classified into a number of levels. Level one is a, the best, randomized clinical trial with low um, false positive and false negatives. Level two, when there's a slightly higher false positive and negative rate in a randomized trial. Level three, uncontrolled, unrandomized trial comparing one treatment with another. Level four, no comparison group. And level five, just a case report. So you can get a feeling for the quality of evidence just from that list. On top of all of that sit things called systematic literature reviews and meta-analyses which look at the data of series of randomised trials to extract the most meaning from them, giving critical appraisal, appraisal and insight. But sadly, searching through all of this stuff isn't straightforward. It's become a piece of work, really hard, uh, to keep up to date with the medical literature, simply because of the sheer volume. There were over 900,000 papers indexed in Index Medicus or Medline last year. That's more than 2,500 papers a day. It's physically impossible to read that much. And certainly to review it for quality or relevance in detail is a challenge. Um, Obviously, we look at our own field in uh, more detail, but it's still an enormous amount of work. The sum total of medical information currently doubles every 3.5 years, and by 2020, it's estimated that it'll double every 73 days. Now, various tools have been made available to us to help us navigate through this, not least of which is the Internet or Google. Um, but there's also the Cochrane Library, which looks at... Um, specialises in, in providing best evidence through systematic reviews. But their resources are also limited, and not everything is reviewed. But I think despite these constraints, evidence-based medicine is established as the best way of choosing how uh, we might identify the right treatment for our patients, relying on fact where possible rather than fancy. Now, the effectiveness of any medical intervention judged by EBM, evidence-based medicine, is usually seen through my eyes as a clinician or my colleagues in terms of numbers of some kind, like um, a blood result, blood pressure, ejection fraction of the heart, or how your kidneys are working. But to provide comparison between treatments at the policy level, at organisational level, we need not just the clinician's um, objective measure of the quality of these treatments, but also to see how it matches what the patient actually wants. And this leads us to the concept of value-based medicine, which is now becoming a, a key component in the design of many health systems. VBM, I'll call it that for brevity, theoretically uses the best available evidence combined with patient-perceived quality of life conferred by that treatment. And it relates that quality of life to the resources that you use. And that ends up with an equation. It's, it's called a cost-utility analysis. So the value to the patient equals the outcome following the intervention or treatment divided by the cost of the intervention. And um, this has been refined, particularly by Michael Porter from the Harvard Business School, uh, to point out that the only value that matters is the value to the patient 
And you can only work that out by measuring outcome over the course of life, not just the operation in a few days afterwards, and the cost, both to the patient and society, over life as well. He's also proposed that this equation, which is now known as the value equation, um, should be used as a basis for purchasing and commissioning healthcare in whole systems. So you don't buy a procedure or um, pay for a visit to the hospital. You pay for effective and valued outcomes uh, of a treatment. Now, a great place to start in doing this is to deliver value to patients, is to concentrate on ensuring that your health system, your hospital system, whatever it is, is devoted to delivering high-quality care. If you provide high-quality care, then um, the patient experience is likely to be good. You're likely to have less complications, less delay, both of which cause huge expense to organisations and people. They also equate to poor service. At the moment, one in ten patients in OECD countries is unnecessarily harmed at the point of care. And 10% of hospital expenditure in those countries is spent sorting out error. That's waste. And we could and should do better. Now, um, if I use the abstract term quality of care, it, it sort of means different things to different people. And so over the last couple of decades, people have tried to focus down what they really mean by that. And the Institute of Medicine um, has come up with six attributes of quality um, Starting with safety, nobody should be harmed. Patient-centred, should be focused on your individual needs. Shouldn't have to wait or hang around for treatment. The treatment should work and should be evidence-based. And it should be efficient with no waste. And it should be equitable, equal for all people in the community. Now, the value equation has been refined to take that into account. So the value equals outcome quality divided by cost. And quality means the outcomes plus these aspects of quality or experience. And the costs are further subdivided into direct and indirect. Sounds a piece of cake, doesn't it? And, and it's obviously appropriate. Um, but actually it's far from straightforward in practice. And it's particularly uh, not straightforward in healthcare. We have not done well in trying to work out these values over the decades and Brown and Brown and Sharma uh, summarise that very clearly by saying we have failed miserably over the years to be able to sort it out. It is surprisingly hard to measure both the outcome of treatments and it's equally difficult to quantify all the relevant costs. And I need to take you through some of the reasons why that is. Just looking back at those Institute of Medicine attributes of quality of care, um, makes you realise how difficult resolving the value equation is. How do you measure safety in any uniform manner? What, infection rates, return to the operating theatre, bleeding rates, unplanned readmissions? You can list a whole series of categories which might reflect safety. What does patient-centred really mean? And how would you capture meaningful, reproducible information on something so vague? Delays and access issues might well um, be appropriate and reportable, like the 18-week wait you read about in the papers. But when does the clock start ticking? When you see the GP, that might be three weeks after you've tried to see the GP. When you get to the hospital, when, and so on. 
And the system of referral varies from place to place too. So trying to get comparison and define value in two different sites immediately becomes difficult, and so on. These problems are, of course, all potentially solvable, but they require a huge amount of work in methodology, basic methodology, and extensive developments in integrated data collection and analysis, just to define some aspects of quality. So how, how do we measure effectiveness of our treatments? Now, um, in my world, uh, we've been concentrating for decades on mortality because cardiac surgery is risky, and that was an easy thing to measure. It's pretty binary. Um, but there are many more values which we could and should and do measure. Um, but each of those also requires data definition, also requires collection, also requires uniformity across the system, and it, you have to find a way of getting that into an analysable form centrally. The introduction of patient satisfaction and quality of life means that the assessment of some of our conventional views of outcome is challenged. Our concepts of success uh, may not be quite the same uh, if you take into account the patient's views. And sorting out the value of the quality of care has led to a search for ways to quantify that quality. And it's not straightforward. It's a topic of research in its own right. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the relationship between quantity and quality of life. Now, the outcome of a cancer treatment is often expressed in terms of patient survival. So, thus, a treatment may be judged to be a success if it extends life for that patient or for a significant group of patients receiving a treatment compared with a control group. But what if the patient doesn't value that life extension if it involves the use of a very, very toxic chemotherapy and perhaps chooses to have an earlier but drug-free death? Is that a failure of the treatment or a success of care in the abstract? You're looking after what the patient wants. Clinicians and hospitals are often judged internationally by their survival data, so the wishes of the patient in not having such a long survival may bring their respective goals into conflict. How do you measure value between these two groups under those circumstances? So we have to try and formalise the measures of quality of life in some way, uh, and, and these, uh, for reasons which I'm not entirely sure, are called instruments of measurement. And there are three main types. Function-based, which measure your quality of, of life in relation to uh, cognitive function, a bit of physical function, your social function, and your psychological function. Preference-based instruments, where you ask the patient their preference for one health state over another. And some generic ones, which uh, measure aspects of quality of life um, across all specialties. And let's go through those a bit. Function-based instruments are mostly specialty-specific, so relating to cardiology, the heart, or to the lungs, to rheumatology, to brain, or to eye disease, for example. And as a result, there are thousands of these instruments and way more to review than I have time for today. They can be really simple. I'll show you one next. Or they can extend to questionnaires which have pages and pages of questionnaires, and you actually need to be trained in order to deliver the questionnaire to the patient. 
This is a simple one. It's about rheumatoid arthritis. Four classifications, and anyone who's got arthritis in the audience will be able to slot themselves into one of those categories quite easily. One is perfectly okay. Four can't do much. So you can find some place for yourself. There are um, several of these um, with multiple items of um, questioning. They can be self-administered or done by a trained person, but you get different results when a trained person does it, so they're not uh, as as good as you think they might be. Preference-based instruments are those where you're trying to allow the patient to tell you how they feel about a given health state and what they find desirable or undesirable. And there are three main types of these, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. Utility analyses, rating scales, and multi-attribute analyses. So they all work on the same principle of a utility scale, which means that a state of death is scored as naught when you're dead. You don't have life, that's naught. And perfect health is one. And you kind of end up with a score which puts you somewhere on that scale. Now, uh, the first of these is called a standard gamble utility analysis. And in this, the patient must choose between remaining in the same health state or or choosing to take a gamble at a new treatment which may end up leaving you in perfect health or dying or somewhere in between those two. Put it another way, if you're offered a 70% chance of having perfect health, If you choose to take the gamble, that also means you have a 30% chance of dying. Would you take that chance or would you rather stay in the health state that you're in? And there are various forms of words that have been described to help a patient make this work. It's a bit like getting consent for surgery, this. Um, And uh, it has the advantage of being applicable to anything you do, and it's quite reproducible and easy to administer, but it, it doesn't deal very well with mild health states and And everybody's a bit frightened of death, so it tends to um, make you a little bit more optimistic about your current health state. The second way of scoring this, working out how you feel about your illness, is a thing called the willingness-to-pay analysis. So this assumes that there's an idea that you might be willing to pay money for an improvement in your health state or a return to normal health. So the choice you have to make is to stay in the same health state that you're in now, That gives you a utility of your current health state. Or you pay money for an improvement, say, to perfect quality of life. And uh, the best way to try and, I think, describe this to you is to to take you through a worked example. So I'm going to say, imagine that you have diabetes. And I'm going to ask you, what we would ask a patient, please imagine that by permanently paying a percentage of your monthly income, you could permanently eradicate your diabetes. What is the maximum percentage of your monthly income, if any, that you would be willing to pay to get rid of your diabetes? How much financial value are you putting on getting rid of your symptoms? So if someone was willing to pay 20% of their income to get rid of the diabetes, that equates to a utility value of 1, perfect health, minus 0.2, 20%, 0.8. The next method is called time trade-off. So instead of using a preference or money, 
you convert those choices into time. Again, let's use diabetes. And um, the first thing you do is ask the patient, how many more years do you expect to live? You as the patient. Suppose there's a treatment that would get, get rid of your diabetes for the rest of your life. The treatment works, but will shorten your life. Your quality of life will be better, but you will live for less time. What is the maximum number of years of life, if any, that you'll be willing to give up to have the treatment and therefore have no diabetes for the remaining years? Is that clear? So, the patient expects to live for 20 years but is willing to trade off three of those years to be free of diabetes. That gives a utility of 1 minus 3 over 20, 0.85. Now, if... If she was willing to trade off seven years, that means she mean, thinks that the diabetes and the treatment for diabetes are pretty crap, worse than they were on the, the three years model. And so the utility of her current health state is less, 0.65. Rating scales are the other way um, of scoring how healthy you think you are. And they're similar to customer satisfaction scores and you have to score yourself between one and zero on a rating scale, often using emoticons like the ones you see here, where one is the best possible state and zero is the worst or death. And you put yourself somewhere along that line and score your, how you feel your quality of life is. It makes them really easy to do. It's very easy to grasp. But it's actually not quite reproducible because it's almost too simple. People make very rash decisions. And you can score... Um, quite low scores when people do that. And then we talked uh, um, about these multi-attribute analyses. And what I want to show you is the Euroqual, which is a relatively simple version of this. So you've got five dimensions on the left. And um, you can see each of the things on the right are fairly obviously associated with um, good and bad for those characteristics. Now, what the scores are are worked out by weightings which are done by large population surveys. So let me just take through an example. If, if you have um, no problem in your life, you fill in everything on the left-hand column, you have perfect health, a utility value of one. If, on the other hand, you have some problems with pain, moderate pain, and you have a moderate restriction in mobility, these score, as, the, as you see on the screen, that's based on the population surveys. That means that when you calculate the utility, you have a utility of one minus those two things added together, your, your utility, your health state is 0.73 of perfect. Now, using this model, you can end up probably realistically with scores which are worse than zero. In other words, people think that being alive is worse than death. And there are many situations in medicine many of which some of us may have faced, where you can conceive that. Now, all of these utilities, this way of scoring your life in relation to perfect, um, go, go quite a long way to allowing comparison between different areas of healthcare and between different treatments. And the impact of a treatment on the length of life can be incorporated into a measure called the quality or Quality Adjusted Life Year. And this keeps cropping up in the media, so I think it's worth talking about. It's probably the most commonly used means of quantifying the effect of a healthcare intervention and guiding allocation of resources that there's in use around the world. 
It's the basis of what NICE does, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, providing a standardised approach to comparing evaluations across different healthcare areas. Theoretically, providing equity. The quality is calculated using this formula, which multiplies the years of life by the utility value. That's the score we've just generated from all of those things we've did, where you are in relation to perfect. And that gives you a number of qualities. And you're scoring on the same utility scale. So just to exemplify that, assume a person lives for one year in perfect health. That's one year of life times a utility value of one, perfect health, that equals one quality. Let's now say that that person lives for only six months in perfect health. So they have half a year of life, 0.5, times perfect health, 1, equals half a quality. Now, if they live for one year, but only in half good health, it's one year of life times half a quality, half a, half a, utility, half a utility value, and that gives you 0.5 qualities. Now, um, if you're doing a cost-effectiveness study comparing one treatment with another, um, I need to show you how that works. So here's another example. Let's assume a patient lives for three years in a health state which gives them 0.7 of perfect, according to the, the measures we make. And two treatments come along. That gives them, if you multiply that, three years by 0.7 utility, 2.1 qualities. Okay, So now two treatments come along, A and B. Treatment A means you don't live any longer, but you have uh, a better quality of life. So under those circumstances, it's an additional 0.2 times 3, 3 years, 0.2 qualities, giving you a total of 0.6 quality added. Drug B, on the other hand, you live for two more years at the same health state, 2 times 0.7, 1.4 qualities. Now, um, you can make some sort of choice on that, either strategically as a policy decision or as an individual. You can look at that and say, well, I actually I want to improve my health state and I don't want to live any longer or I want to live longer at the expense of not having any improvement. You could choose between those two drugs. If you add cost to that, it becomes more complicated. And conventionally, the aim of any economic analysis is to produce the greatest number of qualities for the available resources. That's how NICE works. It gives you health-related value for money. And because of the social factors of, for example, poverty and deprivation, there's the potential for these to become unmeasured by this calculation. So you have to uh, put weightings on it. And NICE, um, whose website is here, um, uses different weightings to uh, emphasise the relationship between equity and efficiency. And you can look at the, how they do that on, the, on their website. Quality isn't the only measure. There's something called the disability-adjusted life year and something called the healthy year equivalent. But essentially, although there remains debate about whether qualities are best, at the moment, most people think they are. Um, and the approach is probably to improve the quality calculations rather than reject them. And when you, when you leave tonight in the handout, 
um, there's a, a big chart in there which demonstrates how you suck in all of these utility values to create a quality. It's much too complicated to project, so uh, it's, a, it's a piece of work. So we've talked a lot about outcome, and that's objective and patient um, measured outcomes. I need to turn to the quantific quantification of cost. Now, before I became interested in the efficiency of healthcare, I thought measuring cost was, was easy. Cost was cost, wasn't it? And it turns out I couldn't have been further from the truth. It's a complex subject, especially for um, a, a clinician, I think. And it's got a language of its own, and it's open to academic analysis in its own. But the methods you choose to cost something have important practical implications, and even more important, national policy implications. Now, um, I've implied that there's a different perspective all through this, a patient's perspective, a hospital perspective, and so on. The patient, in relation to costing, can incur costs from loss of income, loss of time or opportunity, and from any expenses associated with receiving the health care. Now, we're really lucky in this country because our National Health Service keeps these costs as, to us as individuals incredibly low, relatively. But cost still comes into those decision-making for people who are self-employed or those with responsibilities to dependents. The situation in, for example, the USA and parts of China is that it's what you can afford that may well determine what health care uh, you can obtain. We've all heard stories of the sacrifices that um, people make to be able to get treatment, selling their house, getting rid of their savings, and so on. And the consequences, if they can't raise the money, means that they can't necessarily get the treatment. The provider, that's like the hospital, incurs costs associated with staffing, equipment, facilities, drugs, and so on. And, and many of these costs are actually driven by people working within the organisation. And nowadays, because of things like austerity, these financial considerations to the hospital are crucially important. The purchaser is the person who's being given a budget to buy healthcare from all of these organisations, either, for example, an insurer, or in the NHS, a commissioner, or um, a, 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 another system. They have to make decisions about what they're prepared to pay for, so they need to understand the costs very, very clearly. And, of course, overriding all of this is society. Society incurs costs associated with the overall expense of delivering health and has to make policy decisions about how we divvy stuff up. Now, as a result, costing has been a huge concern of governments since the NHS was started in 1948. And an enormous number of methods have been tried. But over most of that time, most of the costing has been central, done at the Department of Health. And the output of the costing models was in a form that people like me at the front line didn't really get. We felt excluded from it, and not least because they were complicated and they weren't clearly linked to what we were doing every day. We didn't see what relevance it had. It becomes impossible to gain an understanding of the cause and effect relationship between a clinical decision, resource consumption, and the outcome to the patient. And if we're moving into a value way of thinking, those relationships become critical. Because there are things called cost drivers, and these are 
parts of an organisation that increase uh, 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 the cost. In a hospital, staff costs make up 60 to 70% of the organisational costs and salaries. Drugs are hugely expensive, and as you've read in the papers as well, sudden step changes in the cost of an individual drug. Some generic drugs went up by 4,000%. Nitric oxide, which used to be free, suddenly became £2,500 a day. They're set by industry. If a patient gets a complication, it costs a huge amount of money, often uh, uh, way beyond uh, the, the cost of the initial treatment. Technology isn't cheap, and it needs to be maintained and replaced in pace with what's going on in the wider society. Um, and uh, that mode of replacement, for anybody who gets an iPhone every year, you know how fast that changes and how often you need to do it. And then there are costs of the process itself, which most of us don't really get. Process is expensive. It's a bad process. It costs money. A wasteful process costs money, causes delay. On top of that, organisations have problems with facilities, the scale of the organisation, the location, prime real estate, the waste they have to manage, and the cost of educating their staff. These are all cost drivers which push up the cost of what goes on. So if you're in any kind of organisational position, you have to decide what you want to cost. You might, for example, want to work out how much a particular event costs or, for example, an operation or a, a gastroscopy or a clinic visit. Or you might want to group together a whole bunch of those things in, in things called episodes. Once you make that decision, you then have to work out what resources are needed to do it, measure the actual utilisation based on your thinking, and then ascribe some monetary value to it. Sounds easy. And then you have to validate it and, and analyse it. Now, um, for most of my time in the NHS, costing was done somewhere else, in the finance department or in the Department of Health. And my role as a consultant or as a departmental head was to turn up, like Oliver, at various committees, usually in March, and ask for more. I get a handout of unused resources, particularly in March, uh, in order to anticipate next year's budget cycle. That was my, my goal. You spend most of your thinking what you might ask for rather than working out how you might do it for less. In the 1980s, some of you will remember that um, Mrs Thatcher kicked off, for various reasons, um, some significant NHS reforms. And uh, in an incredibly short time, the internal market was born uh, and a purchaser-provider split. And this was based on true Thatcherite principles that a market works better, it creates choice. Uh, um, I've already talked about choice, and we know that that hasn't worked out very well. But when you start to split the purchaser and provider, the demand for detailed knowledge of the costs and the accounting rises exponentially. Uh, a variety of approaches had to be developed, and, and a whole industry grew up inside the NHS, uh, working out how to cal calculate cost, because that mattered if you were trying to choose between one place and another. Data had to be drawn from all sorts of sources, and in the, in the 90s, they weren't developed. It was really manual and labour-intensive. Um, 
we were only really, really considering a tiny part of those costs. We were just looking at the direct costs of healthcare, not really the non-healthcare costs, and certainly not indirect costs to the patient or to their business, or future costs for that disease. It was a very localised way of thinking. And, and as a result of such a narrow view, it got really hard to hold budgets in line. Very challenging indeed. So the next thing that came along with, with these two little items, health resource groups, HRGs, which were a way of describing um, bits of care which were similar uh, and used up about the same amount of resource. So, for example, a hernia repair and a knee replacement might end up costing about the same amount of money, so put them in the same HRG. They, they don't, but you get the idea. Uh, payment by results was a system of payment where it had nothing to do with results. It had a lot to do with activity, actually, how many you did. But nationally determined currencies, in other words, um, the currencies were the HRGs. That's what the language was that was being used. And what you paid for an HRG was called a tariff, is called a tariff. So these were centrally set. And uh, at ward level, you seem to have almost no control over this stuff, this top-down approach. You seem to be drowning because it didn't have any direct relations. What's a knee replacement got to do with a hernia replacement? It didn't make much logical sense. The, this centrally driven, top-down approach effectively excluded those of us who were spending the money as cost drivers ourselves, defining treatments and so on. Um, and uh, the calculation of costs was also pretty difficult. They, the data were being taken from various data sources in the hospital, extracted, shoved somewhere else into a, a data warehouse to tabulate. Somebody else integrated them, and then they were sent to the board. We were working along the bottom of the screen, never seeing any of this stuff. So to improve the situation, two other modes of costing are spreading through healthcare. These are patient-level information and costing systems, or PLICs, and service line reporting. Um, PLICs identifies the costs associated with one patient and then aggregates them up to mean a whole group of patients who are similar to that one. So you add the costs up. Service line looks at what a department costs, radiology, surgery. And it, it makes really good sense, but they're completely dependent on the quality of the digital services of the organisation. And are the IT systems good enough? For example, if you're looking at patient-level costing, are all the consumables we use for a patient barcoded? Does the barcoding information link to the patient? And then can you aggregate all that information through to the group of patients? Can you do it for a specific unit? Because if, you, if you're like that, you would also like to be able to choose between one piece of equipment which costs a lot and another one which costs less and does the same job. But actually, you're not going to turn up at the annual procurement meeting to choose that purchasing. You just want to be able to choose on the day that syringe versus that syringe. Can we do that? Well, no, largely. Um, the development of adequate IT infrastructure is critical, and hospitals are far apart in how far they are along the digital path uh, as they walk. Where it has taken place, another uh, system becomes possible. It's activity-based costing, which draws on all of those bits of information I've, I've done, I've described, and pools it for patients who are similar 
by doing it much more automatically than I've described. And if you can combine PLIX, SLR, and ABC, uh, then in theory you get much more accuracy of true costs. And the people at the shop floor have some relationship to what they're doing. They can see it. Simply redlining a budget that hasn't been used in the finance department doesn't really work. It don't, you, you, if we're, going to, we're very competitive people, and if you want us to reduce the cost, we have to see the data. Now, it is clearly right that we consider the value of what we do in healthcare. But, but that value is all about perspective. Patient, family, provider, payer, and society may all have different views. And the decisions we make about the allocation and use of resources and the decisions that affect individuals have ethical as well as economic dimensions. And and understanding the relationships between ethics and economics is is a huge challenge for anyone working in healthcare, and the less money there is, the more acute those ethical debates become. We've seen them today in the newspapers over rationing. Rarely does the letter S make such a difference to meaning as in the difference between value and values. This is Matthew Cripps, who runs the National Right Care Programme, and I think he's right. The patient and his or her family may have a different concept of value, for example, if they observe great suffering as a part of the treatment in their relative. Their own hope for cure may be trumped by the pain they see in their loved one uh, as they experience treatment which is designed to extend life. Now, the the wonders of the NHS mean that almost all treatment is free. And a cost-utility analysis, like the value equation, is probably not something which, as an individual or a family, you have to deal with unless you've chosen to be cared for privately. Under those circumstances, if you have to trade in your house, get rid of your savings, accept money from friends or family, or go into debt to get the treatment, then cost-utility analyses become really important at a personal as well as a national scale. And we're seeing that now with all of the arguments in America over Obamacare. Government and health systems must take a more objective view. Apart from the direct control over the size of the state, they also have control directly or indirectly of the resources and service provision available for healthcare. As resources diminish, for example, during austerity, or costs rise, for example, with increasing demand or innovations or technology, then the cost-utility analysis is all they have available to guide policy. We're really lucky that NICE exists. It's a world leader in its field, and it's forged a path through a complex ethical undergrowth to balance the needs of individuals with the wider society. Um, Its website is fantastic. I'll see if I can get it to come up. I can't, so we go back. Um, But you can go to their website at the bottom and see in great detail all of the uh, way in which they do their stuff. Uh, It's a public asset, and you can see lots and lots of searches that they've done. They also provide cost-saving guidance where you can look at the impact on uh, uh, a particular treatment on potential savings or costs for the NHS. It's open to you as members of the public, to go and look at at any time. And it's a really salutary experience to see how much work has gone in from doctors, specialists, uh, community workers, and patients 
in order to create the guidance and the costings which you see on their website. It is the envy of the world. It may not be perfect, but I have very rarely been to a country which didn't wish it had one. In a wider societal sense, we should clearly use resources only on effective, uh, only on effective interventions and ensure that we meet the need equitably. The NHS publishes a thing called the Atlas of Variation, um, which you can also find online. Um, I had hoped to be able to show you on, online, but it's not working. Um, but on that site, for example, you can see that uh, multiple maps. I was going to show you a demonstration of how people are following the guidelines for the treatment of diabetes. Uh, they vary hugely across the country. The guidelines that NICE establishes have been evidence-based and are agreed by patients and doctors alike. But there's a difference of over 40% between 76 and 30-something percent. Um, at the good end, 76% of the patients are being managed on guidelines, and at the worst, 30% across the country. That can't be right. It's wasteful, and we have to do better than that. Public exposure of their data, which you can get on the Atlas of Variation, means that you can take a view of how your health system works. I see no rational excuse for excessive variation, failure to abide by well-worked-out guidelines, or performing useless operations. You can classify waste in that way, unwanted variation, because of underuse. So things which are proven to work that are underused is clearly wasteful. And things which have been proven not to be of much value are overused. It's a very simple classification, but neither of those should exist, and they both induce cost and reduce value. Evidence should be followed, or if it's absent, we have a moral duty to find it. All of these things rely need us to have integrated data systems to show us our results, manage our healthcare, and identify efficient care. Um, this group called Get It Right First Time, set up by Tim Briggs, has looked at orthopaedic surgery. There's huge variation around the country in terms of uh, adherence to best practice, in other words, following the guidelines, the number of procedures done by a surgeon, the use of the right prosthesis for your hip, what the outcomes are, and even the price of stuff paid in the same system. And his team have now done the same for general surgery, and the variation is extraordinary. I can recommend going to this website to read it in more detail. The variation reduces value, it's expensive, and does not reflect best practice and we have to get more standardised care. Variation is not just about access and the clinical care deliver, but the core costs as well. Um, Lord Carter's 2016 review and the King's Fund in 2015 uh, reported this. Um, this is a sort of just a graphical demonstration of the fact that on the left, some, unit, some hospitals in the country have low, lower costs compared with another group who have much higher costs for the same work. It can't make sense. Uh, it seems to be morally right that we should deliver high-quality health care at the lowest possible cost. We all, all of us, want to be in good health, even if our individual definitions of what good looks like may differ. If we need treatment to restore us to that good state, the good state that we choose, our utility, then it seems morally right that we have access to the best available evidence-based care. Now, 
of course, I get it. I understand that some treatments are so expensive, they need somebody uh, to make some sort of national judgment about whether or not society can afford them in whatever financial state it's in. And I guess we're lucky here that NICE exists to take some of those hard decisions. But I think it's important, again, as I said at the beginning, to state that the government of the day still has the duty to decide how much of its budget goes into healthcare. And after that, it's up to us to make sure that what we deliver is as good value and cost-effective um, and appropriate to the patient as possible. Now, you can't vote me out, but you can vote the government out if you don't like them, and that's a good state to be in in a democracy. Governments and politicians in general have made a lot of political capital criticising the management costs of the NHS from both sides. But I think we must recognise that without management, there's no effective organisation. It's often argued that health systems work best with clinicians in charge, and of course, I'm bound to be biased towards that, although I don't necessarily agree with it. Clinicians have largely been trained in the mechanics of care, not in process design or process control or cost control. Medical care should be provided in organisations which put the safety of, and the quality of care first. That's core. And clinicians usually do that naturally. But our training brings with it a significant risk of inflexibility. We adhere to old guild-based organisational structures, specialties, surgery, medicine, obstetrics. And a concept of professionalism or professional which makes it quite difficult to devolve tasks to people who don't cost as much as us to do the same task probably better. Process and efficiency improvements are often frowned on as, inverted commas, management interference. An implementation of good ideas gets thus thwarted by the medical star. Just a simple example is that many hospitals struggle to um, manage leave you know, holidays for consultants. Rotors are written on scraps of paper, uh, leave is booked late, swaps are not communicated, uh, leave dates for school holidays are oversubscribed, and as a result, operating lists and clinics get cancelled at short notice. That's really expensive, and it's extremely insulting to the patients who are uh, affected by it. It's a process control that needs management. Putting it right needs not only good management, but also good IT systems and good discipline. It doesn't matter whether it's done by a clinician or an administrator, as long as it's good. But it's necessary management. I believe passionately that we can reduce the cost of care significantly if we can demonstrate the cost of activity at shopfall level. We need to see the data and be allowed to make choices on the basis of what they reveal. We must also expend a great deal of effort in minimising complications. As I said earlier, they're expensive. That's what we do as clinicians. Data are key to our understanding of our outcomes and to describing the value of that care to patients. We have to build systems which collate and integrate patient outcome data, direct and indirect cost data, over the course of the patient's life and throughout the NHS, not just within hospitals. Now, currently, data from primary care are not meshed very well or certainly consistently with hospital data. And while, while we must guard your data, my data, with great care, 
I think we should also encourage the population, us, to recognise the value of pooling such information because describing the quality and quantity of life depends entirely on obtaining those data. And that should not only be possible in a true National Health Service, but I think it's essential to define the best care for our population and for people around the world. The data should be integrated across our patch. Now, it's a clinician's duty to deliver value to the patient, um, as I've said. I hope I've demonstrated today that whilst the value equation is a very sensible way of describing a benefit, it's not a piece of cake to sort it out. We elect politicians to decide where the money goes. And austerity policies and increasing demand force change on us if we want to maintain quality, which I feel is my job. However, with accurate, integrated outcome and cost data regularly shared with those who care for patients and indeed with the patients themselves, better process control, we will have the tools to increase value both to the patient and to wider society. And I just want to finish with the words of Winston Churchill, which are not coming up. Give us the tools. Job. And we'll finish the job. Thank you. Thank you very much.